I heard a story once about a pastor who uh, was planning to preach on lying the following Sunday, and so he asked his congregation in preparation to read Colossians chapter 5 that week. One of you laughed. The next Sunday, he stepped into the pulpit and asked for a show of hands. So, how many of you read Colossians 5 this past week? Most folks raised their hands. The pastor hung his head and said, Colossians only has four chapters. Now, I won't ask how many of you read Acts chapter 5. For this morning, I don't want to encourage some of you to lie in church. I do hope you've been all reading along with us during the week to prepare for our study together each Sunday in Acts. And we will actually be in chapter 5 today, and we're talking about lying, as a matter of fact. Kind of, kind of talking about lying. I have titled this message, The Deadliest Sin in the Church. So let me just clarify two things about that right up front before we dive in. First, the words deadliest sin. You may have one of two reactions to hearing those words. On the one hand, some of you raised in the Catholic Church may be thinking, wait a minute, don't you mean sins, deadliest sins, plural? I thought there were seven of them, and I would simply refer you to the Bible, the fact that Catholicism's list of seven is quite arbitrary. Pride, envy, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, and sloth are, of course, all sins biblically, but there's no reason to consider them as any different from any other sin. On the other end of the spectrum, the other hand, many of you were probably raised to believe that all sins are equal. That is also simply untrue biblically. While it is true that all sin leads to death, that even one sin disqualifies you from heaven on your own merit, that doesn't mean that all sin is equally egregious in God's eyes or equally ruinous to our lives. God does clearly distinguish between sins in his word. My discipleship group is reading through Leviticus and Numbers right now, where God outlines the appropriate sacrifices to be offered for unintentional sins, but then he declares, but the person who sins with a high hand... In other words, intentionally, knowingly, shall be cut off from his people. There is no sacrifice for those sins. And even for the intentional sins, God assigns different sacrifices based not only on the severity of the sin, but also on who's doing the sinning. A priest had to bring a bull for his sin offering, while a layperson could offer a goat or a sheep. And this inequality of sins continues is even clearer in the New Testament. Jesus said that Judas was guilty of the greater sin than Pilate. Jesus drew distinctions between a speck and a plank in people's eyes. He said that it would be worse for some sinners on judgment day than for others. 1 John 5.16 exhorts us to pray for one another's sins, but then it warns there is a sin, one specific sin, that leads to death, and John says don't even bother praying about that sin. Someone commits that sin, he is already a goner. And that's a good segue to my second caveat, disclaimer, about the words in the church, in my title. I could not just title this sermon, The Deadliest Sin, because the deadliest sin of all, the sin that John just alluded to that leads to death, is the sin of rejecting Christ. 
Jesus labels this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 3. When the Holy Spirit convicts a person of their sin and of their need for a Savior, even allows them to behold Jesus and his offer of salvation if they would only repent and believe, and yet that person hardens their heart instead and rejects Christ. And Jesus says, such a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit is guilty of an eternal sin, an unforgivable sin. That is the deadliest sin of all friends, the sin that leads to eternal death and hell. And I implore you this morning, if you're here and you have never confessed your sinfulness and repented, turn from your sin, entrusted your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't wait a moment longer, don't harden your heart this morning, cry out to Jesus for forgiveness this morning and you will be saved. With those words of disclaimer, now we turn our attention to Acts chapter 5 and to the deadliest sin specifically in the church. Now let me remind you of the context here. In chapter 1, Jesus commissioned his followers to be his gospel witnesses in all the earth. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended on the church, empowering them for the job. In chapter 3, we see his Apostles following in Jesus' footsteps by bringing others physical and spiritual healing, just like Jesus had. And all the while, this amazing movement of God's Spirit is gaining momentum, and the church is growing. God is adding to their number daily. But in chapter 5, this morning for the first time, God is about to subtract. First, in chapter 4, in between, we saw the Jewish religious leaders try and shut this whole gospel thing down. They arrest the apostles, they threaten them never to speak about Jesus again, but it only served to embolden the church, such that by the end of chapter 4, we read this, this beautiful description of the church. Luke says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And God was greatly glorified. Satan was greatly enraged. And having failed to, to thwart the church by provoking those outside it, the priests and the Sadducees, to persecute the church, now in chapter 5, Satan is going to turn his attention and his attacks to those inside the church. And so, with that word of context, would you stand with me as you're able, again, for the reading of God's word? From Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, 
Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for that much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out too. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning once again for your word. We thank you for the glorious, uh, exciting parts. The church is being added to and multiplied. God, we thank you for the not-so-fun parts, too. Your subtraction from the church for the sake of her purity, her holiness. I pray this morning you would help us to feel the weight of this warning in your word, to get a glimpse of, of your holiness, your, your, your hatred for sin, and yet your love for us, your love for the church, your desire are so much better for us than lives of sin, dishonesty, hypocrisy. Father, would you reveal ourselves to us this morning, reveal our sin to us, reveal Jesus to us, our Savior, our merciful, gracious Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what is this deadliest sin in the church? Is it greed? Is it the fact that others were selling all their stuff and generously giving all the proceeds to those in need in the church while Ananias and Sapphira selfishly kept some of the profit back for themselves? You know, once a year or so, I'll try and work in a sermon on giving, on the importance of supporting the ministry of the church financially so this morning, Giving Sunday, Acts 5 has a lot of potential. You better give generously to the church or else you don't want to end up like Ananias and Sapphira. I better see those checkbooks. But Peter makes it clear in verse 4 that greed is not the root issue here. He says, while the land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Peter says, no one forced you to sell it. And, and once you did sell it, no one forced you to donate all of the proceeds. You can reread the end of chapter 4. The apostles never instructed anyone to sell all of their stuff and share the funds. People just did it voluntarily. And not everyone did it. 
Remember chapter 2 said they were meeting regularly in one another's homes. That means at least some of the people held on to their own property, their houses. It's no good for all of us to be homeless. And so Ananias and Sapphira were under no compulsion here to give. Their sin is ultimate sin is not greed. So is it lying? That's how Peter labels their sin in verse 4. He says, you've lied. And now I think we're getting closer to the point, but we still need to dig even deeper and ask, why did they lie? Peter himself asked that in verse 4. He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and lied? And when you and I read the full story in context, on the heels of chapter 4 especially, the answer becomes pretty obvious, doesn't it? They lied because of their even deeper sin of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the Greek word hypocrites originated in the theater world where it referred to the mask that an actor would put on to hide his real face while he was on stage. It's a facade. It's a superficial appearance or illusion. In our dictionary today, hypocrisy is defined as the, the pretense of having a virtuous character that one does not really possess. Ananias and Sapphira saw the examples of others in their community. Brothers like Barnabas, who gets this special nickname for being so generous, for bringing so much encouragement to the church. Barnabas, who got a special shout out in the Bible, in God's holy, eternal word. His generosity will now be memorialized forever on the pages of scripture. And Ananias and Sapphira thought, man, we want a special nickname. We want to be well thought of and liked by the church. We want to be remembered. We want our names written in the pages of Scripture. Be careful what you wish for. I doubt this is what they had in mind. Why is hypocrisy the deadliest sin in the church? Well, for one thing, it's the only sin that God himself ever personally killed someone for. Immediately, right on the spot. In the Old Testament... God struck down Lot's wife for idolatry, Nadab and Abihu for insolence, Uzzah for irreverence. Later in the book of Acts, God will do the same to King Herod Agrippa in chapter 12. But Ananias and Sapphira are the only instance in the Bible where God punishes sin within the church this severely and this swiftly. In fact, there's only one other occasion in the New Testament where God disciplines the church with a death, albeit not immediate, instant death on the spot. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's the passage just after the verses that we read every single Sunday, right before we receive communion together, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Just after that, the apostle Paul warns them, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. What does it mean to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner without discerning the body? It means coming to the table presumptuously, unwarrantedly or impertinently bold, like you belong there, like you deserve Christ's sacrifice. Instead of judging yourself rightly, discerning your sinfulness and your utter unworthiness of what Jesus did for you. And in that sense, the Corinthian church was really guilty of the same sin of hypocrisy as well. They were sweeping their sin under the rug and coming to the communion table, not with hearts full of contrition, but with hearts full of pretension. But I make this claim that hypocrisy is the deadliest sin in the church, not just because it's the only one biblically that God delivers an instantaneous death sentence for, but hypocrisy is also the single greatest threat to the church's calling. To to you and I being the church that Jesus has called us, created us to be. Christ calls his church to do three things, to love him, to love one another, and to love others outside the church. That's it, that's pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. God designed you and me, this collective body of Christ, the church, that we are so privileged to be a part of for three simple purposes. To love him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love one another, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, church community, family, and then to love those outside the church as well with the love of Christ. He went so far as to call us to love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is why all of this is reflected in our own church's mission statement. West Hills is a gospel-centered church who will glorify God by these three things. Living an authentic Christian community with one another. Growing in spiritual maturity as disciples of Jesus. Growing in our love for him. And serving the world missionally with the love of Christ. But hypocrisy, more than any other sin, poisons our effectiveness to do all three of those godly, worthy pursuits. And so I want to just spend the second half message, rest of our time, showing you how. First, number one, hypocrisy kills our community. It kills our love for one another. We see this in verses one and two in the stark contrast here between Ananias and Sapphira and the loving example, sacrificial example of those like Barnabas from chapter four. Consider again that stunning picture of community at the end of chapter four. The church was of one heart and soul, so much so that no one even claimed their right over personal property. Instead, they were all saying, hey, what's mine is yours. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this. You want to love one another? Here's love, that you lay down your life for your friends. This is what Barnabas is doing. Barnabas is laying down his livelihood for the church. And remember, By this point, there was 8,000 men alone in the church, probably more than 20,000, between 20 and 25,000 people total, women and children, in the church already. This was the original megachurch. And so there's no way Barnabas even knew all these people. He's laying down his livelihood for total strangers. That's love. 
That is radical, brotherly, communal love. And it's infectious. Others see it and they want it. I believe that's probably what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I, I seriously doubt that they intended to lie from the start. I think they probably saw the example of others like Barnabas and they thought, wow, that kind of generosity, is, it's remarkable. It's inspiring. Man, I want to be that generous. And so they rushed out in verse 1 to sell their field and it probably wasn't until they had the full weight of the money in hand. that Ananias thought, you know, honey, no one would ever know if we just held back a little bit, a part of the profit for ourselves. To which Sapphira probably replied, I guess that's true. But the whole point was to be radically generous, you know. Barnabas didn't donate a part of his proceeds. He gave it all. And I want folks to see us like that. To which Ananias replied, yeah, well, what if we told them it was the full amount? We could just tell them we were so excited to give to the church that we accepted a lower offer. We accepted the first offer we got for the property, lower price, because we just couldn't wait to make our contribution and then keep the difference. Sapphira thought, I don't know, babe, that feels kind of slimy. But Ananias said, come on. Come on. We, we deserve to keep at least some of it. Hey, if we hang on to a few denarii, we could afford to buy you that fancy new pair of stiletto sandals that I know you've been eyeing at the market. Sapphira thought, ooh, I do love those shoes. And so they put their own wants over the community's needs. But remember, it wasn't just their greed that hurt the community, it was their hypocrisy. And while it may be more subtle, hypocrisy kills community. It kills it in at least three ways. I've got three sub-points for you here, and with each of them I want to give you an example from the teachings of Jesus, and then another possible modern-day application, illustration as well. First, hypocrisy discourages others. Jesus taught, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, that they may be praised by others. Because that has the practical effect of discouraging others from giving. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were his biggest opponents. And his biggest beef with them, the biggest sin that, that Jesus called out in his time on earth, was their hypocrisy. They loved to make a big show of their good deeds. But imagine that you are a poor farmer or an artisan, craftsman in the temple courtyard. You're about to drop off your tithe. 10% of your modest earnings, when along comes this group of Pharisees, the wealthiest one percenters of their day, they were all pastors like, you know, the prosperity gospel folks these days, 
top 1%, sounding the trumpets to make sure that everyone around sees just how much money their 10% tithe amounts to, how is that going to make you feel bringing your humble, small offering? It's going to make you feel pretty small, isn't it? Like, man, if they're able to give that much, what difference are my few minas even going to make? I would suggest that we still see that kind of thing happen all the time in the church. Not just financially, with our giving. I've listened to sermons where I've walked away thinking, wow, sounds like that pastor is God's golden child. I guess that makes me the black sheep. Because I don't think I could ever be as righteous as that pastor seems to be, sounds to be. It's discouraging. Real holiness, like Barnabas, it's inspiring. It's encouraging. You want to emulate it. Fake righteousness, like the Pharisees, is discouraging. I'll never measure up, so why even bother? Second, hypocrisy kills community by dismissing others. It discourages, but even worse, it dismisses. Hypocrisy overlooks others altogether. It pretends to be about others when really it's just about oneself looking good in the eyes of others. Jesus offers us, again, a perfect example of this in Matthew 15. He's confronted by a group of, you guessed it, Pharisees who want to know why his disciples break the tradition of the elders by not ritually washing their hands. And Jesus replies, you want to talk about respecting your elders? Let's talk about respecting your elders. Let's talk about your Corbin laws, these loopholes that you've written yourselves into the, your interpretation of the Old Testament, whereby you designate the funds that you should have spent taking care of your poor aging parents to God instead, and then conveniently wrap it into your temple tithe as a deduction, which, oh, by the way, goes to whom? Who gets paid out of the temple funds? Oh, that's right, you do. Don't pretend to care about your elders. You don't care about your elders at all. You care about yourselves. And your faux righteousness is totally self-serving. Take an example from today. I've shared this one in a previous sermon about the, the dean of my divinity school who used his commencement address as an opportunity to tell us the story of when he was asked for some spare change by a homeless man on the corner of campus on his own first day of school and being so ashamed that he wasn't able to help, that he resolved never to be caught empty-handed again. He quickly earned himself the nickname Jingles for the sound his pockets made all over campus, full of coins, ready to help poor people in need. Having myself interned at a homeless shelter in college, I was told the worst thing you could do for someone who struggles with alcoholism or drug addiction like the vast majority of homeless people in our country is to give them cash and fuel their addiction. Might as well stick the needle in his arm, Dean Jingles. This is when helping hurts. This is when it's really about you feeling good about yourself, not about getting the person the help they really need, since that might prove a little more difficult than simply throwing some change at a problem. But that's what hypocrisy does. It treats people like problems to be solved so it can dismiss them. Thirdly, hypocrisy kills community by disparaging others. It discourages, it dismisses, and it disparages. To disparage is to speak of or treat slightingly, to depreciate 
or belittle. Hypocrisy judges and looks down on others. That's what Jesus refers to in Matthew 7 when he cautioned us, judge not lest you be judged. How can you say to your brother, let me help you take the speck out of your eye, or when there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. But that's, again, what hypocrisy does. Hypocrisy needs to find specks in others' eyes so that one can avoid the logs in his own eyes and so judge oneself to be better than others. I can still remember being in the locker room in high school, listening to my teammates brag about how drunk they got last weekend, how far they got with their girlfriend, how much of their English paper they plagiarized without, without getting caught, and thinking to myself all the while, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other teenagers, cheaters, drunks, and fornicators. Right before I would drive home and throw myself into my studies because my entire identity and self-worth was idolatrously built up in my own academic success. And then when the pressure of that, that weight would weigh too heavy on me, I'd just binge on pornography for a few hours. This is hypocrisy. And it kills community by mentally disparaging, belittling others into the kinds of people you don't even want relationships with because you're, you're better than them. Second, big bullet point, hypocrisy kills our discipleship. Not only kills our relationships with one another, it is a fatal danger to our relationship with the Lord. Peter makes this really clear when he confronts Ananias in verse 3. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse 4, you haven't just lied to man, but to God. He reiterates it to Sapphira in verse 8. You're not testing me, Peter. You're testing the Spirit of the Lord. Peter says, your biggest issue here isn't even the horizontal one, the damaging impact of your hypocrisy on our community, on our relationship. No, even worse than that is your vertical offense, the rift that your sin causes between you and God. Consider King David, who after stealing Uriah's wife Bathsheba, impregnating her, and then killing Uriah to cover it all up, David wrote, against you and you only, O God, have I sinned. Because David understood, all sin is first and foremost an affront to a holy, perfect God. This is a discipleship issue, a love of God issue. And because hypocrisy poses the most significant threat to our relationship with God. I had originally planned on spending the bulk of our time this morning on point number two, but then I realized it's actually quite easy to show you, to see why hypocrisy is such a danger to our discipleship. I don't even have three reasons for you. I've just got one. Hypocrisy is the single deadliest sin to your discipleship because it is the sin that will keep you from bringing all your other sins to God in humble repentance for his forgiveness. That is so vital. I put it on a slide for you. You should write it down and come back to this. Let me repeat it one more time while you're writing. Hypocrisy is the deadliest sin 
to your relationship with God because it prevents us from bringing our other sins to him in repentance for forgiveness. Here's how that works. I've been blessed to lead others in a variety of capacities throughout my career so far. You know what I've always considered to be the single most important attribute, character trait in someone that I'm leading, whether it's an employee I'm looking to hire, a younger believer I'm discipling, or in my previous life as a teacher, a student I was teaching, an athlete I was coaching, the single most important quality that I look for is teachability. Humility and teachability, because in spite of every other shortcoming a person might have, as long as they're teachable, coachable, mentorable, you can, well, teach them, right? You can train them in their areas of weakness, but teachability requires humility. It requires a recognition that I have not yet arrived, that I am still a work in progress, that perhaps I still have a thing or two that I can stand to learn from this boss, this teacher, this coach, this pastor. And that is precisely what makes hypocrisy so deadly, spiritually speaking. Hypocrisy says, I've arrived. It says, thank God I'm not like this tax collector, like all these other sinners. And the danger is, that you won't confess and repent of sins that you have convinced yourself you no longer suffer from. You won't confess and repent of sins that you've convinced yourself you no longer have. Ananias and Sapphira, they looked at Barnabas and they thought, now there's a guy who's got it together spiritually. We want to be like that, or at the very least, we want to be seen like that. But the problem was, they weren't like that. And Barnabas wasn't perfect either, by the way. Barnabas didn't pretend to be. But Ananias and Sapphira, they did. If they had just acknowledged their sin, gosh, man, that Barnabas is so incredibly generous. I wish that we could give that genuinely, that cheerfully, that willingly. But if I'm really honest, I really want that new third pair of shoes, like even more than I desire to provide somebody else in the church with a first pair of shoes. And I know that sounds bad when I say it out loud, but it's true. God have mercy on me, a sinner, a selfish sinner, a vain consumeristic sinner, work on my heart and make me more selfless, make me more generous. If Ananias and Sapphira had had that on their heart, I'm convinced they could have brought any amount to the offering box that day. Not the whole proceeds, 10% of the proceeds, a tithe. They could have brought nothing of the proceeds, probably. As long as they were honest about it, I think God would have blessed any gift, imperfect, yet honest. But hypocrisy is all about projecting an image of someone you're not, someone who's got it all together, like the Pharisees, who Jesus called whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of death and all uncleanness. 
so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, sin. And it's so deadly because righteous people don't need saving. Right? Only, only sinners need a savior. Jesus said the healthy have no need for a physician, only the sick. But friends, we are all sick. May we not forget it. We are all sick. And one of the worst ways that our sin sickness manifests itself is through spiritual pride, through deceiving ourselves into believing we, we've arrived and we no longer need a Savior. Brothers and sisters, you and I need Jesus and his mercy and his grace every bit as much today as you did the first day that you believed and were saved. If anything, we should only become even more aware of just how sinful we really are as we are further sanctified and grow in the truth in our walk with Christ. That ought to just make us all the more worshipful of Jesus, honest about our sin, and boast in his sufficiency, his perfect sacrifice that covers all our sins. Psalm 32 David rejoices, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is atoned. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. There it is, hypocrisy. For when I kept silent, when I didn't confess, my bones wasted away. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not cover my iniquity, didn't try and hide it up, David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my son. Only the sick need the doctor. Are you aware of your sickness? Or do you hide your sin? James 5.16 goes so far as to exhort us to confess our sins to one another don't just confess them to God, to one another. I, I have to believe that maybe part of James's thought process, the Lord's thought process through the inspired authorship of James there is, again, an anti-hypocrisy check and balance in the life of the church. I sort of had this thought as I was preparing the message, this idea, this vision kind of, for like a sin-sharing, anti-hypocrisy like bulletin board of sorts. You know, we did the, we're doing the 1-8 prayer initiative to pray for those outside the church missionally throughout this year. Sort of had this vision of like a anti-hypocrisy, sin-swapping, sin sin-sharing, uh, app or something maybe we could get somebody could develop for a phone or, or like a community bulletin board like what if we just put a, a, a cork board bulletin board right out here outside in the foyer that every morning when you come in on Sundays and you're leaving and everybody could just post all their worst sins publicly for everyone else in, in the church to see confess their sins James says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another hey I, I need prayer Here's all my sins for all of you to know. I mean, we should be doing this, obviously, obviously, in our discipleship groups throughout the week, in our life groups, our small groups. What if we just did it as a whole church publicly? 
how many of us would post? There's like the acceptable sins, right? But how many of us would post the real, the real truth? The Apostle Paul would. He would have been the first one there. Paul said, I'm chief of sinners. He even gives us, lists some examples in his letters. And he says, and I will boast in my weaknesses. I'm not going to hide my sins from you because Christ's strength is made perfect in my weakness. His grace is sufficient to me. His grace toward me is not in vain. I don't have to hide my sins because I've got an all-sufficient Savior. Finally, number three, hypocrisy is so deadly because it kills our mission. Hypocrisy kills community, kills our discipleship and relationship with the Lord, and it kills our mission to those outside the church. Don't miss how the passage concludes in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Luke specifically lets us know fear came upon the church, those inside, and upon all those who heard of these things. In other words, those outside the church. News of the first Christian funerals travels fast. And the response from those outside the church wasn't the astonishment and perplexity that they had experienced at Pentecost in chapter 2. It wasn't the conviction and repentance that they had felt after Peter's first sermon. It wasn't the wonder and amazement that they'd felt after the apostles healed the lame man in chapter 3. No. Now, for the first time, their response is fear. And I have to believe that a healthy fear of God wasn't the only fear that these outsiders had. I imagine they feared that maybe this church thing isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Maybe it's all a sham. I mean, if they're letting people like Ananias and Sapphira in, I imagine some folks got scared off from joining because they were afraid they'd end up like Ananias and Sapphira. Not just dead, that's bad, killed by God, but but that they'd end up fake, posers. See, honey, I told you those Christians are just like everyone else. They're just like every other religion. It's that pressure to be a good person. It doesn't actually produce better people. It just turns you into a hypocrite, just makes you a better hider. So you can look down your nose at others. And who wants to be a part of a community like that? I don't want to turn into someone like that, a phony. 79% of those outside the church today, according to the most recent surveys, 79% of those outside the church have a less than favorable view of the church. And the number one reason they cite in the surveys as to why is judgmentalism and hypocrisy. Brothers and sisters, we believers of all people ought to be the most opposite, the least judgmental. We ought to be the most gracious people. 
the least hypocritical, the most real people. We're gracious because of how much grace we've been shown in Christ. And we're real about our sins and shortcomings because we have a real Savior who has already paid for them. (laughs) So you don't have to hide. All we have to do is admit we're sick and call on the doctor.